All right, well, again, good morning, everyone. We're back in chapter 14 of the Gospel of John this morning. And last week we saw Jesus comforting his disciples. Um, He had told them that he was leaving them, and they are troubled. And he starts in verse 1 of chapter 14 with, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So he's saying, have faith. Trust that what I say is true. Don't lean on your own understanding here. And then he tells them that he's leaving. He'll be, he'll be going to prepare a place for them to be with him in the future. And they should be full of hope for the future. Jesus tells them that they actually know the way that he's going. And, and he says, sorry, Thomas says, Lord, we don't know. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so if you remember, we talked about why this statement from Jesus is so controversial. It's, it's offensive to some. Um, because Jesus is saying that there is no other way to God. And the religions of the world try to offer paths to God, but they are not paths to God because they have nothing to do with Jesus. Other religions require you to earn your way to God. Jesus tells the disciples that he is the way. We also saw last week Jesus tell the disciples that after he left, they would do greater works than he would, than he had. Um, but he wasn't meaning greater in terms of better. He, he, he just meant that they would be greater in terms of reach. More people in more places would hear the good news of Jesus and, and would experience the salvation that he offers. And more people than Jesus had reached during his time on earth, right? Because really he only spent about 33 years on earth. And, and he only ministered in Israel, But it's always been God's plan to minister through his people. And so by Jesus coming to earth and dying for our sins and rising from the dead and then ascending back to the Father, by him doing these things, God was making a new way for his people to minister to the world. And so we closed last week with, and then we closed last week with verses 13 and 14 where Jesus tells his disciples, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And we saw that this doesn't mean that if we attach Jesus's name to our prayers, that he's obligated to answer them. Um, It means that if if we, as followers of Jesus, pray in a way that is consistent with who Jesus is, and with the teachings that he gave us, then he will answer those prayers. And so when we close our prayers with, in Jesus' name, amen, it's a good reminder to us that we are praying in agreement with who Jesus is and what what God's will for us and the world is. One thing I didn't mention last week, and I, I probably should have mentioned, is that God cares about us more than we will ever know. And he, he created us, right? So this shouldn't be a discouragement for us. Um, we shouldn't be discouraged to bring everything before him. We should be talking to him about our lives. 
and asking him for things like help and guidance. It's not wrong to ask him for things for ourselves and for others. Philippians 4, starting in verse 6, says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then first, Psalm 34, verse 4, says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. So obviously, if you're anxious about a new Lamborghini, that's probably not uh, something that God's going to answer. But he does care about things that maybe we doubt that, he, that is in God's will for us. For example, um, if your pet is sick, we can pray for our pets. And, and let me show you a scripture that says that we can pray for our pets. In Psalm 12, verse 10, it says, A righteous man regards the life of his animal. Remember, God created them too, right? And so the more that we know God and his word, the more that we'll be able to discern what his will is and the, and the better we'll be able to, to pray. Um, but it's not wrong to open it's not wrong to open our lives before him in prayer, is what I'm trying to say. When we read the Psalms, we see that David was very honest before God, sometimes angry. Just because we're, and, and we need to remember though, that just because we're angry and sincere, that doesn't always mean that he's going to answer our prayers. And I think we can sometimes get discouraged by that, um, but we have to realize that he can be trusted and he does know what's best. We don't always understand why our prayers go unanswered, but we have to understand and acknowledge that he is God and that he is good. So, so that's where we ended last week. Jesus continues to teach and comfort his disciples. And in verse 15 of chapter 14, he says, "'If you love me, you will keep my commandments.'" This echoes the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 10, Moses says to Israel, and this is in the context of Moses giving the Ten Commandments to Israel, he says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's command and decrees? that I am giving you today for your own good. Why does God give us rules and guidelines and commands? Well, it, it actually tells us in this passage, doesn't it? It says in the last verse, observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. So obviously the teachings and commands that Jesus gives us are for our own good. But in John chapter 14, he's also saying that keeping his commands is a way of showing that followers of Jesus actually love him. And we'll talk more about this in a minute. But next he says in verses 16 and 17, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So what is Jesus saying? People who truly love him will follow his commands and will receive the spirit of truth, and, and, which is another helper. 
And this isn't the first time that Jesus has mentioned the Holy Spirit. In his conversation with Nicodemus, and I want to take us there to John 3, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said this to you. You must be born again. So Jesus says to him, the only way that you are able to enter into the kingdom of God is by being born again. And Nicodemus asks, how can I do that? How do I go back into my mother's womb? But he, he reveals what he believes with his questions. Um, Nicodemus thinks that to be born again would mean that it would have to be his doing, his work. But Jesus is saying that it's the work of the Holy Spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, he says, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In other words, mankind cannot produce spiritual things. We cannot give ourselves life. We cannot renew our spirits. Spiritual things, things of the Spirit, come from the Spirit. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit, Jesus says. And so we can see that Jesus has already taught about the Holy Spirit. And there are other examples um, of him talking about the Holy Spirit earlier that I would love to point out, but we don't have time this morning. So let's get back to our passage. Verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Here, the Greek word for helper can also be translated as counselor, advocate, teacher, guide, or comforter. And for this reason, some prefer not to translate this word at all, but to to just use the Greek word, which is paraclete. So instead of helper, just saying the Greek word, paraclete, because paraclete really means all of these things. And the Holy Spirit does all of these things. So Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another paraclete or helper. But we need to notice something here. He says, I will give you another helper. In, in Koine Greek, which was the dominant form of Greek in Jesus' day, there are two words for another, and I want to point those out. So the first was alos, meaning another of the same kind, and the second was eteros, which, me- which meant or means another of a different kind. So Jesus here uses the first. He uses alos. And so when he's saying that the Father will give another helper— He's actually saying that the Father will be sending a helper or a paraclete, which is just like Jesus. He will be sending one just like came before, he says. Let me go back to that verse. I will give you another helper to be with you. And so he's sending another just like Jesus. Jesus is also called the helper or the spirit of truth. Sorry, Jesus also calls the helper the spirit of truth in this passage. And and the reason that Jesus says this is that, again, the helper, 
that the Father is sending will be just like the one that came before. He will be just like Jesus. And like Jesus, the Holy Spirit will reveal truth. Some of the other functions of the Holy Spirit include comforting the disciples after his departure, and I've put references here too, teaching the disciples, bearing witness about Jesus, convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and guiding the disciples into truth by telling them what is to come. And I'll, I'll explain these things as we get to them, but we need to understand that the Holy Spirit isn't replacing Jesus. Jesus will actually live in his followers through the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is taking over the work of Jesus after Jesus physically leaves and ascends back to the Father. We also need to understand that Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit was not at work prior to Jesus' death and resurrection. He says in verse 17, I will ask the Father, he will give you the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, but it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He dwells in you, Jesus says. The Holy Spirit was working, for he dwells in you, but he was yet to dwell within them. Maybe up to this point, the disciples had not recognized the Holy Spirit's work in their lives. But he had been working nonetheless through their, te through their teaching and their miracles. Remember, at one point in Jesus' ministry, he sends the disciples out, and, and they go without him for a time. Um, they go to minister. We see that in Mark 6. And the disciples teach, and they call people to repent, and they are able to cast out demons and heal the sick. This was the Holy Spirit working alongside of them. One of, one of the Holy Spirit's functions is to convict the world of sin, and, and the disciples were preaching repentance. And so the Holy Spirit was definitely working alongside them. But now Jesus says he would live, the Holy Spirit would live in the disciples and all believers and would work in a new and greater way than before. Back again to verse 17, Jesus has said that the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit because it neither sees him nor knows him. The reason the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit is because the world does not see him or know him. And the world does not see or know the Holy Spirit because they do not see or know Jesus. Remember, how does Jesus start this teaching? He says in, in verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. So only those who love and obey Jesus, in other words, only his disciples, can receive the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12 says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Jesus goes on in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And it's easy to read this and to assume 
that Jesus is talking about his resurrection and the fact that the disciples will, be, will also be resurrected in the future. And this is true, and this is mentioned in other parts of Scripture, but many commentators believe that Jesus is actually talking about the Holy Spirit here. And, and that's actually the context, right? He's been talking about the Holy Spirit. Jesus is talking about coming to them through the Holy Spirit. I will not leave you as orphans, he says. I will come to you. He's referring to life given through the Spirit in the, the very near future after his death and resurrection. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. This is what Jesus is talking about here. He says, because I live in you, you also will live. The Holy Spirit brings life, just, just like Paul says in Romans here. Verse 20, Jesus continues, In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Jesus will be with his disciples through the indwelling Holy Spirit. The promise of the Holy Spirit dwelling or living within the disciples also includes the promise of Jesus and the Father dwelling within the disciples. Verse 21 says, Whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So Jesus repeats what he, he started with in verse 15, but he expands on it. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, he says, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. We need to be really careful here, though, that we don't read this and think, if I just do what the Bible teaches, if I'm disciplined, then I'm, then I'm good. I'm okay. We talked about this last week, right? That, that's religion. Religion is works-based. You try to earn salvation by doing A, B, and C. And that, that isn't what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying that obedience is the fruit of loving him. If we truly love him, then the evidence of that is obedience. And I need to be clear here, he's not saying perfection. He's not saying if you perfectly obey me every day, that's the evidence of your love for me. That, that's not a reality in this life. Christ works in us to teach us to obey him, and we respond to his work by learning to obey him, that's the attitude and the heart that God is looking for. And please hear me, I'm not trying to water down Christ's standard. He expects that we're doing our best, that we are choosing him, that we are striving to follow and obey him. Paul says, I beat my body and my, I make it my slave. He's talking about self-discipline. So we strive to be holy as God is holy. But we also don't fall into utter despair when we fail, 
we, we get back up and we try again, right? Some of us here are really hard on ourselves when we make a mistake. So much so that for days and days we agonize over it. And, and yes, we should recognize our sin. Yes, we should confess it to Jesus and to others if we have involved others or hurt others somehow. But we have to repent and we, we have to move on. The Greek word for repent literally means to do a 180 and to walk the other way. Jesus has made provisions for our mistakes, but that doesn't mean that that's an excuse for us to go on sinning. And Paul discusses this very thing in Romans 6. He says in verse 1, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We have a gracious Lord who has died for our sins so that we can keep moving forward. And, and, and we do that. We move forward, right? We keep our eyes on the prize. We keep our eyes on Jesus. Remember, the disciples were not perfect. They were not super Christians. They didn't understand so many things that Jesus taught. And they all fled when he was arrested. Peter even denies him three times. And, and they all, in the end, end up hiding after Jesus' death. They end up in fear and in hiding. They may not have been perfect, but at the end of the day, they believed in Jesus and they were committed to following him. It was these disciples that Jesus promised the Holy Spirit to and who received the Holy Spirit after his ascension. And we're not perfect either, but we press forward and we move on because Jesus has enabled us to do that. Paul says in Philippians 3, starting in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Back to our passage, verse 22. It says, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? So Judas goes back to what Jesus has said in verse 19. Let me bring that up too. Jesus had said, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. So the disciples are still thinking in terms of Jesus as Messiah in, in terms of being an earthly Messiah. Remember, they're thinking that Jesus will take over and become king of Israel. But he's destroying their idea of that kind of a Messiah when he says that the world will no longer see him. And so Judas is wondering what in the world he's talking about. Jesus answers him, verse 23 and 24, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him. And make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the words that you hear, the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. 
Judas probably didn't see this as an answer to his question, but it was. Jesus reiterates that the fruit of those who truly love him is obedience. And he and the Father will come to those true disciples and make their home with that person. In other words, the world will see me no more, but you will see me. There's also a lot more to what Jesus is saying here. He's not just reiterating that the world will no longer see him. He's also explaining what will happen after his departure. The promise of the Holy Spirit dwelling or living within the disciples also includes the promise that Jesus and the Father will dwell within his disciples. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. Verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is also important because it reveals that as his disciples share about Jesus, and some of them write things down, just like John, as we're, this is the gospel we're going to, right? As the disciples share about Jesus, the Holy Spirit will not only help them remember what Jesus taught and said, but also give them an understanding of what he taught and said and did. And this is an important part of the writing of, of much of the New Testament, with the exclusion of Paul, of course, who only had contact with Jesus after his ascension. And I need to note that part of this promise is specific just for the 11 remaining disciples. The Holy Spirit does teach believers, as the first part of this promise says, he will teach you all things. But the second part of this promise is a specific promise. Another, a reason that it's a specific promise is it's, and it's only for the 11, is that the Holy Spirit will remind them of what Jesus had said to them when he was physically with them. But we as believers, we can still benefit from that promise, of course, as we have the New Testament in front of us, right? We are able to learn from the New Testament scriptures because this promise was fulfilled. Another thing to note is that the Holy Spirit still teaches. Paul also benefited from the first part of this promise in that the Holy Spirit taught him and opened his eyes to the things of God. So much so that Paul's writing is regarded as scripture almost immediately. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, and count the patience of our Lord of salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them which are, are hard to understand, but the ignorant and unstable twist, sorry, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their destruction, as they do the other scriptures. So Peter recognizes Paul's writings as scripture. Paul also considers his writing as coming from God. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. And that may seem arrogant, and Paul sometimes does come across as arrogant if we don't understand that 
he was actually commissioned by Jesus himself. When Paul shares his testimony in Acts 22, he shares what Ananias had said to him. God spoke to Ananias directly and asked him to go to Paul. And and God also told Ananias what to say. And Paul shares that when he shares his testimony in Acts 22. He says, And he, Ananias, said to Paul, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, that all scripture is God-breathed. God-breathed is translated from a Greek word that is the combination of God and spirit. The Holy Spirit is the reason that we have the New Testament. He did what Jesus said he would do. He will teach you all things and bring your remembrance of all that I have said to you. And the Holy Spirit continues to teach, teach us, and to open our eyes to the truth as well. Verse 27, whoops. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So a common way to say goodbye in the New Testament in New Testament times, was to use the word shalom. It's a Hebrew word, which means peace. But Jesus takes this further when he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. He takes this further because he's about to provide, excuse me, he's about to provide peace to them through his death. Romans 5 verse 1 says, therefore, since we have just, been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we not only have peace with God, we have peace with Jesus. We have peace because Jesus has removed our need to fear death. In Hebrews 2, verse 14, it says, "Therefore, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The disciples truly do not need to be troubled. Verse 28, Jesus continues, You, you heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will, con- and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Clearly, the disciples are not rejoicing that Jesus is leaving them and going to the Father. So does that mean that they've failed to love him? To be honest, I'm a a little stumped here. Most commentators choose to not even talk about this. Um... And I think they're maybe as confused as I am. Um, But I did find one commentator brave enough to take a stance, and he says that the disciples were too selfish at this point to be able to love Jesus with the kind of love that he's been teaching them about. This sounds like a good answer, but I don't know. It's still a little unclear. The disciples 
remember, are devastated when Jesus is crucified. And they definitely cared for him. But at this point, did they truly love him? Another thing that can be misunderstood is at the end of verse 28, when Jesus says, for the Father is greater than I. And um, cults like the, the Jehovah's Witnesses will use this verse to argue that Jesus is a lesser God than the Father and that he is some kind of created being. Um, we need to understand that the truths that Jesus teaches in the Gospel of John are the foundation for the doctrine of the Trinity and, and our understanding of the Trinity. These teachings are dense. They are very, very, very deep. And so they need to be wrestled with in the light of other scripture and, and with guidance from the Holy Spirit. We always need to ask the Holy Spirit to teach us as we read his word. Scripture t clearly teaches that we worship one God. We are not polytheists. That is, we do not worship more than one God. The Father and the Son are not separate gods or separate beings, but separate persons in one being. Remember, John opens his gospel with, in the beginning was the Word, and he's referring to Jesus as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. One commentator says it well when he says, the Father and the Son are one in purpose and essence. And we see that in John chapter 10, verse 30, when Jesus says, I and the Father are one. When Jesus came to earth, he gave up his glory. Scripture tells us that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so God the Son, Jesus, humbles himself and comes to earth. And in doing so, he became limited in some aspects because he was not just God the Son, he was also a human being. When theologians refer to this, they often call him the God-man because he was both God and man at the same time. But as Jesus, sorry, but as human being, as a human being, Jesus had limitations. He grew tired, and we see that in Scripture, John chapter 4. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And then in Luke 2, it tells us that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So Jesus grew in knowledge as he grew up. And so in his humanity... Jesus was less than the Father, but in his divinity, he was and is equal with the Father. Again, this is, this is hard to wrap our minds around and something that honestly is a mystery, but we can't fully understand it, right? But we, we try to understand it as much as we can. All right, verse 29, Jesus continues, and now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Jesus had predicted his death and resurrection many times. And so when it actually happens, the disciples will be able to go back 
and, and to find comfort in the fact that it was not an accident, it was not an unexpected thing, it was not outside the will of God. Verse 30, he says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Jesus' time here is limited because the hour is here. And the hour has come for his, his death, right? His death is approaching. And Satan was moving against him. And things were in motion. Judas had left to go and betray him, to, to turn him over to the authorities. Satan is described by Jesus as the ruler of this world, and we talked about this before, the only power that Satan has in this world is the power and influence he has over people because of sin and death. Sin and death give Satan a hold over people. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 says, You were dead because of your sins, and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. And we'll end with verse 31. Jesus finishes by saying, But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. And so just as the fruit of our love for Jesus is obedience. The fruit of Jesus' love for the Father is obedience to the Father. Jesus is obedient to the Father all the way to the cross. He is our Savior, our Redeemer, our Helper, and our greatest example of how to live this life. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we are, we are thankful for your example. We are thankful for your demonstration to us of how to live life. You came and you grew in wisdom. You depended entirely on the Father for guidance and direction, and you were obedient to the things that he asked you to do. You demonstrated what love looks like that it takes humility to truly love. And we pray, Jesus, that you would help us to learn from your example. Help us to walk as you walked, to look to the Father, to look to you for guidance and direction as our Lord. We thank you that you, you want that for us, God. You, you're just waiting for us to ask and to come to you. So we, we thank you for your word. We thank you um, that we can learn these things. We thank you that the Holy Spirit opens up our eyes to these things. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.